you would to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and nice and high. If you get a Bible from us, it's page 576. Uh, this series is a little bit different maybe than some of the book series we do. Different in this sense, that, that, that the, there's a linear thought here. One lesson builds on the next, builds on the next, builds on the next. So we, we titled it, Who Is This? And we said that from the life of Christ, it recorded in all four Gospels, Jesus is confronted by people, uh, man, disciples, the, the general population, um, Punch Pilate, a whole bunch of people. Who, who is this? Who are you anyway? And so we said, we're going to ask that. We're going to ask it in a series of questions. So let me remind you of these questions. We actually technically began the, the series, began the questions Good Friday, with the question of who is this that died on the cross? And then the progression, Easter morning, who is this who rose from the dead? Who is this who exposes darkness? Who is this who knew no sin? Today, who is this who takes away the sin of the world? And next week, in the last one of the sessions in the series, who is this King, Savior, God? And the answer, by the way, if you're struggling here, is Jesus to all of these. Okay? And, and so that was the progression, that, that the question is asked of Christ, and Jesus seems to be fairly black and white in terms of saying, I want to take away from you the option of I don't know. So he says, you're either for me or against me. I'm going to give you this information, and then you either respond or you don't. But the stakes are, are large, and, and the answer's clear. So we started on Easter, and, and we said this is like maybe a, a TV show or a movie that you've seen play where the closing scene chronologically, is like, or the opening scene chronologically is the closing scene, and then we come back to that. So the resurrection. So a great deal of time was spent on the historical fact of the resurrection. We're not going to go back and, and regurgitate all of these, but let me just let me suggest to you, it's really easy. That's one of the great things about the Internet. You can just go and Google resurrection facts, and you're going to have a ton of information at your fingertips very quickly. And I, I really think, I, I was reading something this week from a, a very a much a skeptic who was saying, you know, people who believe basically in, Christ or religion in general are too lazy to look and too, too lazy to look at facts and too lazy to do the hard work and aren't very reflective. And I thought, can you imagine sitting down with Jonathan Edwards, who that big Christian publication, the Encyclopedia Britannica, calls the greatest mind America ever produces. You know, you're too lazy to look at facts and you're too lazy to think. And it, but it's some guy who's just regurgitating something some pinhead university professor told him. I digress, okay? <laughs> but, but I say, look at the facts of the resurrection. Man, I think you might be surprised, honestly. If you've never done it, I think you might be surprised. So, so here's what we concluded the first week is Jesus rose from the dead. And we said, you know, let, let's be practical now. If that's true, then I may want to pay a special attention to what he said about himself, about us, about me, and about how all of this comes together. So two weeks ago, my topic was, who is this that exposes the darkness? So you're in John's Gospel. If you just flip back to John chapter 3, verse 19, it's right after Jesus says, 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said this, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear his deed will be exposed. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 11, 12, that no one does good. Now, that offends really our sense of just common sense because we look around and say, well, my neighbor, you know, when I'm gone, cuts my grass, didn't even ask him to. Storm came in last August when we weren't here, and he came in and swept the pool, and here's a good thing, and clearly that meant, and what, what Paul is saying to us is in the eyes of God, no one does good because God's not looking at the action by the heart of the actor. And so our hearts are evil, uh, deceptively so. That, that even in our good actions, and sometimes we'll just like to lift the curtain a little and let you see in there, even in our good actions, the reason we do it is, is, is for our own benefit. So if you watch, why, why, watch the local news and watch them cover an event like, like Special Olympics, and they'll talk to the people that work there, volunteer there, and they'll say, why do you do this? Almost always they'll say, it makes me feel so good. So, so you're doing on the surface a good thing, but you're not doing it for a good thing. You're doing it for yourself. And what happens is Jesus comes along and exposes that dark side. Well, all of a sudden, the light comes into the world, and the standard shifts from our own sense of good or bad or goodness or evil into God's standard and I come along and this is always happens all of a sudden once I see God as he really is all of a sudden I go I'm in I'm in real trouble last week Tim taught and answered the question who is this who knew no sin? And obviously the answer is Jesus. And Tim hung in John chapter 8 last week and, and, and shared with you four important points. That Jesus claimed to be, John chapter 8 verse 46, claimed to be sinless. Chapter 8 verse 52, he said he was the only way to God. Chapter 8 verse 56, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So there's, there's hundreds of Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah that would come, and Jesus fulfills every one of them to the letter, including where he'd be born, all the things that he himself would have no control over at all. And then in John chapter 10 verse 58, Jesus indeed asserts that he is God. So what I, I want to do is to pull together and it'll be this week and next week, pull together this whole series and, and have you see that our sin has separated us from God, that God's plan or provision is for Jesus to come to the earth and to die, to die in our place. We now embrace that, and now we have life. When you teach, I was telling somebody the other day, there are moments that, that are really frustrating moments, and it's not like frustrating, angry moments. They're like frustrating, helpless moments. And Good Friday was one of them. I, I thought, that like, there's times where you're teaching and you say something and you don't really think it's much, but like you, the emails light up and everybody goes, that was really incredible, that insight or whatever it was. Not to say it's mine, it's something you read or whatever. And then there's times when, when you... When you think you have something really, really special and because it was really special to me and then I share it with you and then it's like no reaction at all. 
And so I can only assume at those moments that the problem is, is you, not me. I mean, I'm, I'm not willing to. No, I assume, it's, I assume it's me. But there was a thought on Good Friday that I had that I thought was really great. But, but, there, but there, was not this, there was not this wow. And it felt like there should have been. So we'll go down this path again at the appropriate time. When I rub my forehead. So here's the point. I'm, but here's the point I'm making. And, and, and I hadn't really thought much about it in the context of it until uh, Good Friday this year. We're, uh, once you're around this stuff for a while, and once you begin to study, and once you realize that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates, in Genesis 3, man falls, and literally, now, within eight verses, God is already promising a redeemer of salvation. I think there, and maybe it's me, and I'm wide open to the fact that it's just me. Maybe it's human nature to think that somehow God didn't have any choice in that matter. Because we get that it's his plan. We get it from beginning to end. We see chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, creation, chapter 3, the fall, redemption, restoration. So we see that. We see it's his plan. We can't read through without seeing that God's in control. But here was the point I tried to make Good Friday. I did did make Good Friday. It just wasn't any good. But here's the point I made Good Friday. Is that that's God's plan, but he didn't have to have that plan. God could have done nothing. I know. That's a big deal. I'm glad you got it. Okay? I know. It's really frustrating. But it's like, maybe it's just big for me. It's like I'm going, wow, that's, I keep forgetting that. God could have been very, uh, totally justified and say, you sin, you live with it. Wait, just sin is death. Have at it, little man. Or he could have come and saved everyone, but he didn't do either of those. God sent Jesus, and if God was going to save us, there was only one way to do it. He had to become flesh because the sacrifice is required, and it has to be a perfect sacrifice, and no human born of the flesh could pay the perfect sacrifice. That's why God had to come to this earth, not beam down or in a rocket ship, but born of a virgin. So he didn't have Jesus, our sin nature, therefore could and in fact did leave a perfect life so that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. But God didn't have to do that, but he did. John, (laughs) you're overworking it a little bit, babe. We may need you at four tonight, though, if you can come back. That four o'clock group, you look out, all you see are U of A t-shirts. They're just not there. Okay. I don't have time for you now. John Stott writes this. This is what John Stott writes. If we bring God down to our level, raise ourselves to his, then of course we send no need of a radical salvation, let alone of a radical atonement to secure it. When, on the other hand, we have glimpsed the blinding glory of the holiness of God and have been so convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit that we tremble before God and acknowledge that we are, namely, quote, hell-deserving sinners, then and only then the necessity of the cross appears so obvious that we're astonished we've never seen it before. That's why we have to come back. That's why we traffic in this over and over again. 
We're just never going to get very far from the condition of man or from the holiness of God. So, so take, take to what Tozer says, put it together with what Stott says. So Tozer says our problem with our theology is that it never ascends high enough or descends low enough. And what he's saying is, now Stott, we bring God down to our level or we bring ourselves up to his. But, but we come back again and again and again because we need this biblical view of ourselves. So that's what we've kept in front of you. And that's what we've kept in front of you. There's a sense in which you should look at this. Uh, I was talking with Tim in the back, and I said, this just feels like what we've been teaching intensely for the last 20 weeks. And in reality, there you go, we've been teaching it for 20 years. It's just, it's just who we are because that's what the Bible says we are. So we're asking these questions, who exposes it? Jesus does. Who knew no sin? Jesus. Who takes away the sin of the world? John chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to be introduced, and there's two Johns here. One's John the Gospel writer, and he's going to record this incident for us. And the chief character in this story is John the baptizer, or John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. So he's talking about John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and they said, who are you? So this is John the baptizer. As early as verse 6 of this book, we've already met him. Look it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify. By the way, uh, John, the gospel writer, loves that phrase, testify, 75 times or more in his writings. So in the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, he talks about testify or testify. And he says, here's my first witness, it's John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he's not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So that's what we're going to see fleshed out. So the priests and the Levites come, not under their own initiative, sent by the Jews to encounter this guy, John the Baptist. He's an odd creature, really, as we look at him humanly. You don't need to turn there. If you want to make note of it, that's great. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, a couple of Gospels earlier. Matthew writes this. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who is referred to by Isaiah the prophet. Okay, and, and John the Baptist is going to use this in just a minute. Qu quoting now from, uh, from Isaiah, okay, Isaiah chapter 40. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make way the ready of the, the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. A little, just a smidgen biographical sketch of John. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, and he kind of lived out in the desert. He was an odd guy. We would look at that humanly. Jesus had an assessment of him. Here's what Jesus says. Recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not one arisen any greater than John the Baptist. So now that's a big statement. Let's just look at this secular world. Okay, You got Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, 
Cicero, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Hammurabi, the lawgiver. There's a whole bunch of those people who lived a life, who did things, wrote things, thought things that still affect our life today, come now into the Bible world, and you meet Abraham and Moses and David and Joseph and Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah. And here's what Jesus says. Take all those guys and a whole bunch of people I never mentioned, and not one of them is greater than this John dude. So this is a major figure who comes to the world and basically has one assignment. And his assignment is to proclaim the truth, to make this path straight. We'll talk about it in a minute. So verse 19, the Jews, now that term probably here speaks of the Jewish religious authorities, send a priest they would be the theological authorities of the day. They were the ones who presided over the religious ceremonies, and they were considered the human intermediary between God and man. And the Levites, the Levites are the ones who would assist the priest. Uh, they acted really as the temple police. Uh, they would be the security detail for the priests. They come under the instruction of the Jewish leaders, because now John's stirring up all this stuff. An odd little character, but he's got all these guys coming, and, and they're wondering, well, what is this? You go ask him. So that's what they do. Who are you? And he says, well, I can tell you what I'm not. I'm not the Christ. So apparently the idea of the Messiah either being here or about to be here, that seems to be, at least in John's mind, and I assume he assumes that it's on their mind. So they said, well, okay, are you Elijah? There were through prophecies based on Malachi 3.1, Malachi 4.5, the idea that actually Elijah himself would return in a bodily form before the Messiah came to establish earthly kingdom. In fact, I, I told that to this day at some Jewish people's gathering as they celebrate the Seder dinner, they'll leave an empty chair in case Elijah shows up that night. So they're waiting for him. So he says, no, I'm not that. Are you a prophet? No. Well, who are you, verse 22? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? We're here on assignment. We can't just go back and say, no, no, no. We've got to tell them what you are, not what you aren't. So he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, in that day and age, they would send the head of a, of a king that was coming to town. They would send a, a group of, of men who would remove all the impediments on the roadway. If there were bumps, they would, they would smooth them out. If there was a path that was crooked, they would straighten it. When I was home, I was home uh, two weeks ago. Last week, we were in Boston. That's where we, we were. That's why Tim was teaching. I went with Tyler and Braden and Yale, and we went back for three Red Sox-Yankee games. We did not know when we scheduled it that the day we were there was, to the date, the 100th anniversary of the opening of Wrigley, or of, uh, should have been Wrigley, Fenway Park. Um, and it was an amazing day. They did like Field of Dreams. Every living white, if you played 30 seconds with the White Sox, they invited you back. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, 
the Red Sox, what did I say? White Sox. I'm all screwed up. That's because the Red Sox and the White Sox are playing right now, and I'm wondering how that's going. Um, but, yeah, if you played for the Red Sox for a second, they had you back. And it was really good. The, the worst part of the whole weekend was the stupid game. But they're up 9 to nothing Saturday, and the Yankees score 14 runs in two innings. It was not pretty. I looked over at Yale at one point, and Yale was just sitting there like this, just like this. So the boys were awesome. So that's where we were. Then last Sunday, they got rained out. It was 56 degrees cooler there than here. So it was rainy and wind blowing, went to the aquarium. Fish beyond a window. Um, so that's what I digress. It, 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 this imagery here is of those that would go. Well, the week before, that's where I was going. I was in the Quad Cities seeing my mom. And we went to the John Deere Museum. So you see all this earth-moving stuff. They have, a one, they have a one they're working on now. They've been working on it five years. And, it, and it's not wheels. It's, it's like step. It's all off. It's, there's one guy running this thing with, with a joystick. And this thing just walks through the forest or the fields or whatever. It was an amazing thing to see. So you see this big earth-moving stuff. Okay. Well, they didn't have that. This would be... Like in the, in the best of circumstances, this would be like the Secret Service uh, going ahead of the arriving king. Okay? So John says, like that imagery, that's me. I have one purpose, and it's to cry out, and to cry, make straight the way of the Lord. Verse 29, the next day, so, so now he's going to, he, John, the gospel writer, again, he give you some sequentially fast events. So verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse uh, 43, the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1, a next day. So he said, the next day. So this is the day after this encounter. So after the discussion between the priests, the Levites, and John, the next day, John sees Jesus. Here's what he says. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is a title that is exclusive to John's writings in terms of, in terms of the gospel writers of, of, of talking about Jesus this way. In fact, it's really interesting. In this chapter, chapter 1, John speaks of Jesus as, verse 38, Rabbi, verse 41, Messiah, verse 34, Son of God, Verse 49, king of Israel. Verse 51, son of man. Verse 45, the, the one who the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is one of those titles. So, so here's what, don't miss it now. So there's a whole bunch of people gathered around. Jesus sees, or John sees Jesus, and he goes, there it is. Okay? Behold. That's what he's saying. Look at that. The Lamb of God. So they would get that title, who comes to take away the sin of the world. The, the Lamb would say to these Jews that, that, that clearly this is a picture of, of the sacrifice, that, that God and man were separated because of sin, and they could never be reconciled without a, a blood sacrifice. No forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And, and so historically, on a, on a daily basis, a regular basis at the temple, Clearly on Passover, so Jesus, uh, right before he dies, that Passover 
At that time, they said the population of <coughs> Jerusalem would swell to as many as 3 million. And on that Passover, they would kill as many as 250,000 lambs. But they all knew that wasn't the real thing. That was a symbol. That was pointing us to something. And so here's, here's what John says. There it is. Not a lamb, but the lamb of God. And not the one who's a picture of what might happen. He came to take away the sin of the world. It has nothing to do with this lesson, but it, it was an interesting moment in our life. We used to celebrate a Seder dinner every year. And uh, we decided that we would do it as, as close in terms of food prep and everything, to be as authentic as we possibly could. And so there were some gals and guys working on different things, and one of the gals came to me and said, we're having a real problem figuring out the lamb. We can't get it cooked right. We've tried. It just, just is not working. I said, well, call one of the local synagogues and just ask them how they cook it. They'll tell you how they cook it. So she came back like three or four days later. She said, I talked to three synagogues, and they all said the same thing. We don't use lamb anymore. We use chicken. And I said, well, somehow, behold, the chicken of God, who takes away the sin of the world, seems to lose a little of the imagery there. And I'm not sure how they resolved that. And I said, well, then just make really bad lamb. That's what we'll do. So he says, here's the lamb of God. And he's on assignment. His assignment Verse 29 is to take away the sin of the world. So question that we ask, what is it? Question number, number four, who is it that takes away the sin of the world? It's the Lamb of God. Who's the Lamb of God? It's Jesus. Now, let me read you at length here from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle writes this, Christ is a Savior. He didn't come to earth to be a conqueror, a philosopher, or merely a teacher of morality. Let me just stop right there. Isn't it interesting that that is probably the prominent role that most people give him, a philosopher or teacher? They didn't come for that. Now, was he a teacher? Sure. Did he share truth with us? Yes. Did he live a, a, a life that we're to model? Yeah, he did. That's not why he came to earth. He didn't come to, as a conquering king. He came as a, as a servant king. And he came to, to save, to save his people from their sin. He, he came to save sinners. He came to do that which man could never do for himself. I like Ryle's writing here. To, to do that which money and learning could never obtain. To do that which is essential to man's real happiness. He came to take away sin. Christ is a complete Savior. He takes away sin. He doesn't merely make vague proclamations of pardon and mercy and forgiveness. He took our sin upon himself and carried them away. He allowed them to be laid upon himself, and he bore them in his body, his body on a tree, 1 Peter 2.24. The sin of everyone that believes on Jesus are made as though they had never sinned at all before. The God, Lamb of God has taken them away. He didn't die for Jews only, but for Jews and Gentiles. He didn't suffer for a few persons only. He taketh away sin. Now, this is, and he does it daily. He died once and for all, but that forgiveness is available to us every day. Jesus came to be the, the God, the King, the Savior of all that would come to him. Behold, the Lamb of God, not our Lamb, a lamb that will be slaughtered once 
And the purpose for his being here and the action that he performed is to take away the shame, the guilt, the wrath, the punishment of, of, that were due. And, and then it just goes and, and he begins to, to then John again speak about himself. So the question of the day, who is this that take away the sin of the world? The answer is Jesus. When we sat down in the, in the preaching collective to, in preparation for this, there were two passages that Luke and Frank decided to use in kind of the, kind of the anchor this, this lesson. One was the passage we look at, John chapter 1, verse 29. The other's in the Old Testament, so I'll invite you to turn there. Page 396 in the Bible we gave you. It's Isaiah 53. We look at Isaiah 53, the heading in my Bible, and I'm sure it's different in others, is the suffering servant. It's clear at this point from Isaiah 52, 53, that, that somebody is coming. And, and in Isaiah 53, we understand it's the Messiah. One author says, the Messiah steps out into full glorious view. So we see the Messiah. Now, again, it's a Messiah different than the Messiah than the Jews expected. It's not the conquering Messiah. He's not bringing economic prosperity or political uh, control. He's not doing that. He's giving us something we need far deeper than that to take away our sin. That's our ultimate problem. My ultimate problem is sin. My ultimate problem is not that the government doesn't respond to me. Okay? I had a situation. I have this... this I have a pet peeve. You can't even imagine this. But I don't, I don't understand why we need mail delivery every day. You get nothing in the mail but bills and birthday cards and advertisements. So I tend to not, if you went to the mail every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Tuesday Thursday, Saturday, you could take what is a suck hole, $11 billion they're going to give them this week, and turn it into a profit center. Now, it would mean jobs. I got that. But there's something bigger than jobs. We'll find other jobs because we'll spawn the economy. So the other day, I was talking to Sandy, and I said, I should go get my mail because I don't think I got my mail for a while. I went over, and there was, there was, there was a sheet of paper in there that says, you haven't picked up your mail in a while. You need to come to the post office and get it. But we won't give it to you until you give us 24-hour advance notice, so call this number. <laughs> I know. So I called the number, it rang, it rang. I put it on speakerphone, did my work, it rang. That was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So Thursday I went down and I said, you know, I didn't get my mail, I got this. And they said, well, we don't use this number anymore. <laughs> really? I didn't make this up. Well, we don't use that form anymore. And I said, there's a reason you need $11 billion to bail you out, okay? <laughs> so I got my mail in a big, in a big bucket and I went over and I just sat and literally just, just threw tons of that away. Does that bother me? It drives me nuts. But my biggest problem isn't government. My biggest problem is, is not I wish I had more stuff. My biggest problem is sin. And the only solution is Jesus. Right? That, that's my problem. So when Jesus comes, isn't it interesting that he doesn't lead a political revolution or an economic revolution or an educational revolution? Those aren't the problems. Those are symptoms of the problem. The problem is sin. 
And I, and I came as the Messiah, but it's going to be a very different type of Messiah. Chapter th- uh, 53, verse 3, I, I'm despised. He's despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but there's not one incident recorded in the scripture of Jesus smiling or laughing. Now, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he didn't have this sour, oh, the world and the weight of the world's upon me disposition. Here's the way I know that, very simple. The children were attracted to him, and if he was like that, they wouldn't be attracted to him. But, But the characteristic of Jesus' life is not laughter, it is a joy, but it's a joy that's incorporated into sorrow. He says in, in verse 3, he was despised, and we didn't esteem him. John Piper observes this. We must remember that all through his boyhood and even into his manhood, speaking of Jesus, he was pursued by nasty cracks about his birth, inferring that he was an illegitimate son born to a faithless widow, I'm sorry, faithless maiden who had broken her vow of betrothal. His brothers misunderstood him and did not believe him. They were embarrassed at some of the things he said and did, and it wasn't until after the resurrection they believed in him. He was called a drunkard and a glutton and was said to be possessed by the devil. He was called a Samaritan, which is a disparaging term. He had nowhere or no home to go to. He said of himself, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Matthew 8, 20. Sometimes his disciples left him alone to go about their own business, but he had to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and sleep alone beneath the olive trees. He became at one point public enemy number one. In the weeks before the crucifixion, the Pharisees offered a reward to anyone who would turn him in. Surely he was rejected by men. In the words of the Apostle John, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 11. He was a sorrowful man, but the sorrow was born by his clear understanding of the cause of the human condition and the problem. Jesus is there as Lazarus is dead. Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But then Jesus wept. He sees the effect of sin all around him. There's joy. He even talks about him, him for the joy set before him, speaking of the cross. There's a joy, there's an anticipation of how God will provide a provision for our deepest need, which is sin, but, but there's a heaviness here. Chapter 6, the last part, it said, The Lord had caused the iniquities of us all to fall on him. The paraphrase from the message is this. God piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. Look at the words and the the way that, that it's described to this Messiah. In this passage from Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Verse 4, our sorrow he carried. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. Verse 5, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 11, he'll bear our iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. Listen to those words, those verbs. Struck, smitten, afflicted, pierced, scourged. 
That are all the things that Jesus absorbed, and it's very clear for us, our iniquity, our transgressions, fell on him. He was there on our behalf. He took our place. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each turning to his own way. Let me read you again from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, uh, Isaiah 53, 6. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. He said, you're a sheep, not a goat. Remember when we studied Psalm 23? We said, God's very deliberate here in the image. A, a, a sheep are by and large stupid, dumb, dirty, fragile, defenseless animals. Not bright at all. And he said, we're like sheep in the sense that we've all gone astray. They just tend to wander off. And he said, here's what you've done. The paraphrase from Peterson. You've done your own thing. Each one, verse 6, each one have turned to our own ways. When I was uh, not a believer, uh, one of the guys that I love to listen to, still do, really. It's still on my, on my satellite radio, uh, Sirius, Seriously Sinatra. I love Sinatra. One of the songs that really became a song that was identified with Sinatra was My Way. So I had this picture, as, a, as not a follower of Christ, I had this picture that my funeral, there would be the appropriate, and I assume abundant shedding of tears, uh, and then there would be all these great things, since I had neither done great things nor anyone said great things to me, I assume they were saving up for that moment. And then when... When the, when the funeral was over, at that moment, everyone would rise, and, and they would take me and wheel me out. I preferred sitting in a chair, but maybe in a casket. And then right then, they would put on Sinatra singing my way. That was going to be like my last little shot. And I can't tell you, as I've shared that over the years, how many men and women have said to me that I've thought that very same thing. Let me read you this song. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. That's how I hear that. Regrets I've had a few, but then again too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and I saw it through without exemption. I plan. I think it's, listen to the singular personal pronoun. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. There were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and I spit it out. I faced it all, I stood tall, and I did it my way. You can hear the defiance in here. I've loved, I've laughed and cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that, and may I say not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. And then listen to the fight, it's like it builds to this crescendo. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he's got not, to say the things he truly feels, not the words of one who kneels, 
The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Now, it occurred to me as I was doing this that the majority of people in the four or six o'clock service will have no idea who Frank Sinatra is. <laughs> Maybe some of you. But you certainly get that, don't you? It's that self-reliance. Here's from USA Today. I check USA Today on my, on my iPad or iPhone every day. And this was a story that was on today. This, this is a little more sophisticated, but it's the same story. The headline is Secularist Counter Prayer Day with National Day of Reason. Quote, as millions of Americans bow their heads Thursday for the annual National Day of Prayer, atheists, humanists, and other non-theists will mark the day their own way. The National Day of Reason, or NDR, is in short uh, that expression of the non-theist community who will also uh, hold May 3rd, part protest, part celebration, totally godless. And one of the guys leading this, director of communications for this center of, of inquiry, quote, in times of great conflict and worry, people want to look to a higher power, and I'm sympathetic to that. But our day puts the focus, and he's talking about our day, meaning the day of their celebration, the day of reason. Our day puts the focus back on people and what they can do for themselves. We're trying to make a better world on our own by emphasizing good works and good deeds. In fact, one group in Putnam, Connecticut is holding a Science for Reason book exchange, turn in your Bible and receive a free copy of Darwin's Origin of the Species. Okay? Now, this is, here's what Spock would say at this moment. This is typically human, okay, and totally human. This is the defiant call. It, it, it's my way, dressed up in some sort of intellectual gobbledygook. I hear it all the time. Every presidential election, they go, we, he's an intelligent guy. We've had all the intelligent guys. They haven't got us here. We did all that. We got Harvard Law guy. Kennedy brought the best and the brightest. That gave us Vietnam. Didn't solve anything. John Kennedy said, we got ourselves into it, we'll get ourselves out of it. How's that working for you? Right? Here's the problem. We get it as followers of Christ. We got ourselves into this, our big problem, we can't get ourselves out of it. Our problem is not education. I, I, I'm all for education. But, but you understand in Nazi Germany, they would smoke great cigars and drink the best brandy and, and listen to Beethoven as they marched the Jews in to incinerate them. They were plenty smart and sophisticated. It's not economics, though I'm for that. My biggest problem is sin. One of the others talks about sin. He talks about a disease in this sense. He's saying it, it distorts who we really are, just like a disease, just, just like a cancer that comes into you or a disease that comes upon you. It distorts what you were meant to be. It, it takes your, your faculties and it, and it throws them off the equilibrium and it saps your energy. It numbs you and causes great pain and sin is, produces this pollution. That's the problem we have. The problem with man is this. Our sin has got us here. And the arrogance of, of a my way or the arrogance of a national day of reason, the arrogance of saying we got ourselves into it, we'll get ourselves out of it. 
Boy, I get, I get when you're in real trouble, you want a higher power. I'm going to suggest it's those people who are in real trouble who all of a sudden see things as they really are and understand the circumstances and realizes there's nothing they can do. When Susan was diagnosed seven years ago, they diagnosed her as with something that was not curable but treatable. And then we went through all the processes of treating and blah, 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 blah. And, and I cannot tell you how many conversations I had about that and then all that stuff. And only to think as people walked away, do you understand that you're not curable? But we can treat it, we can postpone what's going to happen. This sin disease that we have is not curable. And it's not even treatable by us. There's nothing we can do. We can't make it kind of right. Destruction's inevitable. Let me see if I can tie these, these last two weeks together. Man is in darkness. He's sinned. Sin has invaded you. Everybody. And the result of that is that, that we're children of wrath. We hate God. We dress it up. But we hate God. We make God in our own image. We make him less. We make ourselves more. And then everything in between. But the, the, the man is in darkness, and it's Jesus who came to this life sinless. Sinless so he would be the, the perfect lamb. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Again, one of those verses we go to again and again and again. God made him, that's Jesus, who know no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So, so who was it It was sinless? It was Jesus. Why? So that he would be the perfect sacrifice. So that he could go to the cross. And that in dying on the cross, he could pay the price for your sin. 1 John, same John as the gospel writer, chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God. We said, I'll talk about love. He tells us in other places, the only reason we do love God is because he first loved us. We come into the world alienated from God, and we are determined to not change that. We will construct our own version of a God, but we hate the God of the Bible. We despise him. We want nothing to do with him. Now, we may warm up to spiritual things or a God that we like, but not that one. But ultimately, there are a whole bunch of people who fall in love with him. So like in this, in this chapel room right now, in the conference center 45 minutes ago, you all took communion. It was a moment when you proclaimed that Jesus was Lord and Savior and he died in your place. But, but that's because God did this work in your life. So John says in John 4, 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. How do we know? He sent his son to be, here's the word, the propitiation for our sin. The word means to satisfy the wrath of God. So if you start talking to people about God, they want to talk about God, love, 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 love. And I love, the, I love that God is a God of love. But you have edited him if you don't talk about him as a God of wrath. Because he loves righteousness and holiness, he hates sin. These six, yea, seven things, the author of Proverbs writes as he speaks of God, God hates. So propitiation means this. It means to satisfy the wrath of someone. To satisfy, in this case, the wrath of God. So here's love. If you want to talk about love, real love, it's this. That God sent Jesus 
to die on the cross, and in doing so, he propitiated or satisfied God's wrath against your sin. That's all those terms we looked at in Isaiah 53. Who killed Jesus? Isaiah 53, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, pierce him. And always in that context, it's not just some arbitrary thing. It's not just to make Jesus suffer. There's always a purpose, to crush him, to scourge him, to afflict him for our sin. When, when we were doing the, the preaching collective, well, there's a verse in Isaiah 53. It, it bugs me. It, it's, it's the last part of verse 53. By his scourging, we are healed. And some of your translations will say, by your stripes you were healed. So I was making the point in the preaching collective, I really hate this because the health and wealth and prosperity guys uh, use this all the time. He died for your cancer, yada, yada, yada. There's not healing in the atonement. Well, I no more than got these words out. And one of the young men there, Tyler Johnson, then said, well, I disagree. Healing is in the atonement. It's that the ultimate healing is going to take place after death. And I said, you know. These are the reason I never liked you from the very beginning. I, mean, I get that. You get what I'm saying, okay? But there is truth. I mean, Haley sent me the other day a text and said, Braden's getting ready to send you a note to thank you for going to Boston. And then he turned it over and he said, Nana, I wish you were here. I miss you so much. Yale the other day sent a note to Nana said, can you just, I know you, I know you can't come back, but can you just come back for my birthday? Okay? And, and, I, and, and Haley sent me a note saying, you know, it's been however many months, and to know that she has no pain. And, okay, that's the ultimate healing. Okay, so it, Tyler's right. That's not telling. Okay, but Tyler's right. Okay, that's the ultimate sense. But it's not that he died so that, so that you'll have physical life and healing. He died so you'll have spiritual life and healing. doesn't mean he's going to take away your cancer. Here's how I know that. We all die. He died to pay the price for your sin. And now the issue is, how do you respond to that? Some of you, because we're going to talk about that next week. Some of you can't wait. Some of you are sitting there right now going, I, I, I don't want to wait a week. I want to know the answer to this right now. That's why there are going to be men and women who will be in the front of the conference center and the chapel after this service. And they're here to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus. So here you go. We sinned. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ died in the cross. How do you respond? At what difference does that make to you, me, here now today? That's what we'll take a look at next week. So if you're over in the conference center, I, I'm not sure that this morning if it's Brian or Matt are going to come and close that time there. Jake is here in the chapel. He's going to lead us in a time of communion right now. So let's pray together as Jake comes. Father, thank you for loving us when we were not lovable or loving for loving us in spite of us. God, thank you that you gave us what we truly needed more than anything else, forgiveness and eternal life that we find in Jesus nowhere else. Father, thanks for that. Pray now as we uh, either leave this place or come into a time of communion that our minds would be focused on you and loving you and our hearts would be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.